Welcome to the Canaan Bound Podcast, episode number 46. My name is Philip Wells, and I will be your host for this episode. We begin today with Freedom in Christ with Pastor Mark Falk. Galatians 3, 10-12, in theory only. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the righteous will live by faith. Could a human being be saved if he or she kept the law perfectly? In theory, yes, but only in theory. That possibility was taken off the table when the head of the human race, Adam equals man, followed his wife into sin. All became guilty of sin. Check Romans 5. But even if you deny the truth of original, that is, inherited sin, there is this little ugly little fly in the ointment of salvation by law. No one can do it perfectly. Assuming that Ben Kingsley's, ben Kingsley's portrayal of Gandhi is correct, there is a telling scene where Gandhi talks about attempting to extinguish all sexual desire. That was his goal of perfection. But he was married. It was a false goal. At any rate, he had to respond to the question this way, Not yet. I haven't done it yet. And if perfection is a goal, not yet is not good enough. Not yet is not perfect. James writes this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. James 2, verse 10. Jesus puts the demands of the law in these terms. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Now, Christians are sometimes heard to say that God does not command anything that he does not enable us to do. God does not ask the impossible. Really? Yes, God enables the Christian to strive for a holy life, but the flesh still clings to us and Satan still wages war in our souls. Paul did not see himself as having attained a holy and perfect life. It is simply wrong to think that because God commands it, it therefore follows that we poor sinners can actually do it. That is as silly as a father throwing his newborn into the deep end of the pool and commanding him, swim to the other end. There are, these are, in fact, dangerous thoughts. When God commands us and we find that we cannot, that we fall short, God is teaching us the futility of human attempts at holiness. I will grant for the sake of argument that Gandhi was far holier than I, though for good reason this is not true. He was no Christian. But even Gandhi admitted that his quest for self-control remained only a quest, and self-control was was everything to this pious Hindu. It is worth noting that having set aside the law as a way to heaven, instead everyone who breaks it comes under a curse, Paul turns to the Old Testament prophet Prophet Habakkuk 2, verse 4, for the real way of life. The righteous will live by faith. Only in Jesus is the law kept. Only faith in Jesus makes us law keepers 
rather than lawbreakers in God's eyes. Only in Jesus is the curse of the law removed from sinners who strive so very hard to keep it. Faith is not an island. Faith has an object. The next verses will return once again to the object of faith. But we can never wait until tomorrow to be reminded that Jesus has suffered the curse of sin so that we can and do have the blessings of eternal life in Him. Salvation by keeping the law, only a theory. Salvation in Christ, the fact on which our faith rests, and it rests securely. Next up, Stephen Bautista shares Who Will Tell Them from his album A Childlike Faith.
And now we join Pastor Timothy Smith with God's Word for You. God's Word for You, Job 14, verses 1 to 12. Remember, in the final verse of chapter 13, Job began a sad song or elegy about the shortness of man's life. Thomas Hobbes presented some of the same feelings when he said the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That was in a book he wrote, kind of based on Job, called Leviathan. That's part one, chapter 13. The difference between Thomas Hobbes and Job, of course, is that Job had faith in his Savior instead of just faith in his doubt. Now let's read verses 1 to 3. Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Oh, a flower, a shadow, such a man grieves Job am I. Why then do I suffer so much? Job's words aren't bitter, they're a question and a prayer. These words have been used to comfort people in extreme distress, and the comfort doesn't come from Job's question, but from the camaraderie of someone, however long ago, who has suffered as much or more than we have. But Job's words also do the best job of Scripture. They point us to our God instead of to ourselves. Verse 4. Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. This is a wonderful statement. It's quoted in some appropriate context by some of the earliest Christians. It was held up as an example of faith, of, 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 of a Christian confession of faith, both of man's sins and God's perfect holiness. In, in 1 Clement 17, written around the year 95 AD, apart from God, no one can make a human being holy enough to enter into heaven. At least, and, and least of all, can a human being make himself holy enough, pure enough, righteous enough to stand before God. That's what makes God's grace so miraculous. So spectacular. God made the one who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in that one, Jesus, we would have the righteousness of God. Verses 5 and 6. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put put in his time like a hired man. Now, in Psalm 90, Moses says something like this. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Moses was grieving for the death of a whole generation. If you add them up and divide, Moses witnessed about 68 funerals per day for 40 years in the wilderness. Job is grieving that his own life, intolerable and miserable as it is, nevertheless is passing by way too quickly. Verses 7 to 12. At least there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it'll sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, 
It will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water dis disappears from the sea, or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. You know, Hebrew poetry isn't crafted in the way most of us might expect. Instead of coming to the point at the end, the main idea is more often found in the middle, like the peak of a pyramid with long slopes gliding away on both sides. Here, as we approach the middle of the chapter, we also approach the heart of what Job is getting at. In verse 12, the point is still shrouded in tears and misery, but if we look carefully, we see something. Job is troubled by the finality of death, that man does not rise. Men will not awake. But there is a till, that Job says. Until. Until what? Until the heavens are no more. One of the pictures of the last day is the destruction of the skies. And even more, Second Peter 3, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in their heat. Peter's point is that we will be rescued from that destruction and even Job's language roused from their sleep hints that he knows about the resurrection from the dead. Jesus uses the word asleep to describe the dead who would be raised again in Mark 5 and Luke 8 and Jesus Christ himself was described in death as asleep because of the fact of the resurrection of the dead. When Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, there is something beyond death, beyond our imaginations, something so wonderful that the people who were given glimpses of it in visions could hardly begin to describe the joy and the bliss of heaven. Ezekiel and the Apostle John focus on the glorious brilliance and the beauty of the, what? The stones in the ground and the doors in heaven. The Apostle Paul, for once, was at a loss for words to describe heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. By that grace of God, that will be our eternal home. We have a place there prepared for us, and when we are roused from the sleep of death, we will be there in heaven forever. I want to talk a little bit more about verse 4. A lot of commentators and some translators have trouble with Job 14.4. Now, if you're not interested in these things, that's perfectly fine. Maybe you should click out and click into another devotion. But if you'd like a, a little tour of the labyrinth of Hebrew textual criticism, you might find this interesting and hopefully not too confusing. Some early translations of the Bible wrestled with the short second line of Job 14.4, just as modern commentators do. In, it, it's very short, and some critics don't think that it follow, follows the rules of Hebrew um, accented lines. Let me go back and, 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 and remind you that the whole verse is this. Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. Well, I think that commentators who have, a trouble, who have trouble with that, no one, as the second whole line, they, they might only look as far as Job 13.8 for a second line, sometimes called a B line, which has the same number of hard stresses. Stresses are strong or disjunctive accents. In Job, Job 13.8, the accents are the, are the weak 
Merka, followed by a strong accent called a saluk. And in 14.4, we have the weak munak, followed by the strong saluk. Looking at just a short way ahead, in 15.12 and 16.17, we have this similar accent pattern in the B line of the second line of a Hebrew couplet. It has an A and a B, and the B is shorter this way. Now, one Hebrew manuscript, it's called Kennecott 17, actually omits this verse altogether, perhaps because of its supposed shortness, or maybe because it was just a mistake in copying. The Jewish Targum, which is a kind of commentary mixed in with the text, says, no one except God in the, in the B line. And the Latin forms it as a question. Is, uh, is it not you alone? In the Greek translation, the Septuagint, we, we follow the Hebrew text, and therefore we can expect that the damaged Gothic translation would also have said, no one, ni ein shun, as well. However, an interesting proposal has been made that the simple letters, lo, which is the word not. Remember, we talked about this back in Job thirteen, fifteen, that the Hebrew word not, lo, L-O, is inverted and should be read, instead of Lamed Aleph, Lo, it should be read Aleph Lamed, El, or God, giving us God alone as our text. Remember, the Targum thought that was the case. But apart from the Targum, there are no Hebrew texts or manuscripts to support that. In the Latin, the Targum, the Gothic translations, manuscript Kennecott 17, they all appeared centuries after Clement of Rome made his quotation. I estimate that Clement only follows the Septuagint, translated around 200 BC, about 50 to maybe 75% of the time with precision. It's possible that some of his departures from the Septuagint might be due to his quoting from memory, but in other places, he appears to have a text in mind that simply isn't the Septuagint at all. Another proposal is that the phrase, no one, it could be taken as a question, as we have in Malachi 2.15. Although, the, unlike the Malachi passage, this line has no verb, still, verbless clauses are common in Hebrew, and a verb could be implied in a nominal sentence like this. A note on the margin of the Hebrew, called the Mazura Parva, draws attention to the Malachi verse as two places where the Hebrew for lo echad, no one, occurs. So are you confused yet? Don't be. An important rule of textual matters in the Old Testament is that is, is really, I think, too often overlooked. Can the Hebrew text be understood as we have it without making any corrections or suggestions at all? And here's a place where we can understand the passage just as it is. And we have two very important early witnesses to the Hebrew text, although they're both Greek, the Septuagint and Clement of Rome. Who, who, who take the text just as it is. Given these witnesses and the ability to take the verse as the Hebrew has it and the NIV, we should accept it as it's presented, as it's presented in, in all of our versions without any doubts as the Word of God. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's Word for you. We end today with a song called Forgive Me from Chris Dreisbach from his album One Cross, Three Nails.
know that it was wrong Still I played along I went ahead Forgive me For even letting this begin I was weak Wanted to be taken in I saw the danger there But I said I didn't care I went ahead It makes my bones ache And I can't sleep And how my spirit cries out for peace I'm worn out from my tears Take my prayer, I know you hear, have mercy, Lord, I can't take it anymore, I want out, help me find the door, it's time to tell the truth, I'm tired of my excuse. I'll follow you Love me, Lord Even though I hate myself Just for me You took the punishment of hell Bled for me and died But I threw your gift aside Sorry, Lord, and I accept what happens now. You'll take and shape it for good somehow. I don't know what to do, but I'll go You have been listening to episode 46 of the Canaan Bound podcast. This podcast was first shared in November of 2013. Visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com to learn how you can support the ministry of the Wells and the artists featured on this podcast. Once again, my name is Philip Wells. It was a privilege to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit Wells.net to find a Wells ministry location near you. Thank you for listening.